Liverpool, they're a football club steeped in history of spine-tingling glory and at times truly heartbreaking tragedy. But when you are part of Liverpool Football Club, you'll never walk alone. What are you a fan of? We all have things that we have a strong interest in or a deep admiration of. It could be your local football team. It could be the band you have listened to since school. It could be a particular beach resort on the island of Ibiza. But what about your car insurance company? Are you a fan of them? Are you a fan of your local gas station? Probably not, but you could be. The most powerful marketing force in the world is die-hard fans. So how do you create a fandom in something that appears on the surface, maybe a little mundane, dare I say boring? Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the lasting technological changes brought about by the pandemic and how technology can potentially help solve the other challenges facing humanity. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yee. So our guest today on this new season of The Great Indoors is the one and only David Meerman Scott. Now David is the author of 12 books, three are international bestsellers. He is best known for the new rules of marketing and PR, which is now in its eighth edition. It's been translated into 29 languages and is a modern business classic with over, way over half a million copies sold so far. When it was first published, it was considered revolutionary. Now, no one knows more about creating digital content, using social media and real-time tools with strategies to spread ideas, influence minds and build business than David Meerman Scott. So how do you create that fandom? David's latest book that is co-authored with his daughter, Reiko, entitled Phonocracy, was published literally months before COVID-19 changed our world and was a contributing factor, actually, to the thought process behind this podcast. It's also a Wall Street Journal bestseller. So I'd like to welcome to The Great Indoors, Mr. David Meerman Scott. Very excited uh, for this new season and our first guest, even more excited to introduce Mr. David Meerman Scott. So David, welcome to The Great Indoors. Thank you, Matt. I'm so pleased to be leading off your season three. Thank you for having me on. Great. And and where are you enjoying the great indoors from today? At the moment, because you said today, I am in um, my primary residence, which is outside of Boston. Oh. And it's a beautiful day. Summer is here. The birds are out. Um, COVID is in retreat. So what more could we ask for, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we, we always start off with a, a sort of standardized question for our guests. And we have a new one for season three. And it's, as you said, now that COVID is in retreat, restrictions are being relaxed. What have you done lately that you haven't been able to do during the last 18 months? What's something, some level of normal activity that's given you joy? Well, last night, I was really happy to have gone out with 
some of my um, fellow speaker friends. So I was with um, some of these names you may recognize, C.C. Chapman and Jason Falls and Tamson Webster. And uh, we just went to dinner here in Boston. And it was amazing because the last time I was together with a group like that in a restaurant was March of 2020. Wow. Um, And then last week I went to um, my first live music show since March of 2020. Wow. Uh, I went to a show with my friend. and, And so live music is back. That's super cool. And it's also super cool that you know, that we can gather together with friends at a restaurant. And I never realized how important such small joys are, but they really are after more than a year of not doing them. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I was telling Larissa, obviously, we're a little bit behind the unlocking here in Ontario. But last Thursday night, I went to Walmart with my children. And it was <laughs> an amazing, amazing evening. They were so excited <laughs> And what's more, we went into Walmart and there were lots of other families there enjoying the wonders and splendors of the environment. And we were so excited we booked to go to Home Depot this weekend. So (laughs) life is returning. Life is returning. We're really excited about it. So that's great on the live music front, David. I know you're a huge live music fan and that's inspired a lot of your books. And, you know, you've written... Uh, what, how many books now? 12? Is that right? 12 books. Yeah. And one of them, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, I'm currently working on the eighth edition. So depending on how, how you count them, um, I've written 12 books or way, way, way more than that if you count individual editions. Right. Well, and we're going to talk a lot about phonocracy, but you're one of the most foremost sort of experts on marketing. And what is it about the marketing discipline that appeals to you? And, and why have you devoted almost your entire life's work to it? And I say that as a, a fellow marketeer as well, where we share a similar passion. I think throughout my entire career, you're right, I've been doing marketing, I would say, since I was 11 years old. And I uh, started cutting grass in the neighborhood for people and so on on that I just think anyone who's learned how to do marketing in a formal way doesn't do good marketing. And I'm just trying to beat that down and have been since the very beginning. You know, things like spending ridiculous amounts of money on paid generating attention. And I'm I'm not suggesting it's always wrong to pay to generate attention, but there are so many marketers who only pay to generate attention. So, you know, starting 20 years ago, I started I started talking a lot about the idea of generating your own content. What we're doing right now, you know, you and I having this conversation together, we're generating attention for Amdocs for me, for you, um, just by having a conversation that we make available to other people. And that, in my mind, is marketing in a much more interesting, fun, believable, organic, authentic way than, you know, spending a whole bunch of money on some television ads or newspaper ads or, or, or Google AdWords or something. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's always wrong. I'm not suggesting that for some companies that might work, but it's just so many people spending so much time and effort on, in my mind, a lot of the wrong things. 
No, absolutely. And and your first book, as you said, it's almost in its eighth edition, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, was pretty revolutionary, right? I think you've been widely acknowledged as one of the first marketing authors to to really identify social media and the internet and the digital world we live in as being something that would deliver change to this particular discipline. So what? give us just a quick overview of the new rules of marketing and why that was so transformative in our industry. Yeah, I started, I started writing the ideas that became the book back in around 2004, but I was actually practicing them in, in the 1990s. I was really lucky that my early career, I started off on a bond trading desk in New York City, and then I quickly trans- transitioned to the information side of the financial markets. So I worked at a, um, an economic consulting company that was delivering information electronically through the Dow Jones systems. And this was back in the 1980s. So can you imagine writing a blog in the 1980s, which is what my company was essentially doing? And then I worked for companies like Thomson Reuters, like Dow Jones, providing the terminals that bond traders and bankers used, as well as the data behind them. And I did that job for 15 years. So I learned a ton about electronic information and because we were supporting bond traders, how people use information to make decisions. And this was all pre-web. So when 1995 came around and the first internet browsers from Netscape, none of this was weird or new to me. You know, the idea of electronic information and content was not strange or new or weird. It was natural. This is what happens. So I saw that many people around the world were not understanding the electronic transition in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They were essentially taking what they already knew, which is spending money on advertising and putting that onto the web. So that was the era of all the banner ads. So companies and people and everyone was just like, let's do more banner ads, let's do more banner ads, let's do more banner ads, because that's what marketers did. They spent money on advertising. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is about this is about publishing content. This is about creating a great website. This was pre-social media in the beginning. This is about creating a great website. This is about blogging. This is about, you know, using great photographs. Um, And then later on, of course, it also became about social media and video and other things. And it was revolutionary because it was a real new concept and idea for people. To me, it wasn't revolutionary because that's what I had been doing for 15 years prior to that. So you're right. I'm widely credited as being the first person to have written about those ideas The New Rules of Marketing and PR originally published in 2007. As I was writing, it was pre-Twitter, it was pre-YouTube, it was pre-Facebook being available to the the public. At that time, it was students only. So pretty early with all that stuff. Um, Changed a hell of a lot since then, which is why I have to keep updating it now into the eighth edition. Okay. And obviously, there's been a plethora of other great books in between. But let's go to your, I think it's your latest book was Phenocracy. Is that right? Yeah. Phenocracy came out in, in 2020. And, you know, what's interesting about Phenocracy, it's all about turning customers into fans. And what I was struggling with in 
2018, 2019, when I was thinking about these ideas about fandom that became the book Fanocracy, what I was struggling about was how these ideas that I've been writing about for 20 years about marketing being uh, going online, I was starting to see a lot of negative aspects of that. You know, in the beginning, I was just a big fat cheerleader. This is all great. You know, everyone can can create content. It's fabulous. But I was seeing real dangerous things. There's a lot of reasons, but mainly because the social media companies' algorithms, especially the Facebook algorithm, is so utterly destructive. I believe the Facebook algorithm is the most destructive technology ever invented by humans. Now imagine that. What other technologies have been invented by humans that are destructive, like the atomic bomb, for example? I believe the Facebook algorithm is even more destructive. The reason is because it naturally creates polarization. If you click on something, you get more of it. If you follow certain friends, you get more of what they follow. And you know, generally, the idea of that algorithm is to get you to stay longer on Facebook because then they can sell more ads. Now, the other social media companies, whether that's YouTube or Instagram, which is part of Facebook or LinkedIn and Twitter and so on, also have similar algorithms. I think the, the biggest problem is with Facebook. And that means that somebody's grandmother gets sucked into conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And somebody's brother-in-law gets sucked into a, a polarizing a political environment where the other side is the enemy. Yeah, And I believe that that is unbelievably destructive. And so I was trying to push back on that idea. And I thought, well, what else is there? And I just hit on this idea of fandom, that when you become a fan of something, it becomes such a great way to live your life and to see the world. You know, in my case, I'm a fan of live music. I'm a fan of surfing. I'm a fan of the Apollo Lunar Program, among other things. And those fandoms are my tribe, my tribe of like-minded people, other people who love the Grateful Dead and live music, other people who love to surf. And it's a lot more than just some artificial algorithm created by a technology company that wants to make money for its shareholders. No, and I think, look, we'll get to what I believe are some of the negative connotations of of the tools you talked about there, because I'm I'm 100% with you on that. And if we go back to phonocracy, I think you use some great case studies in the book. And it, it came to mind when I was preparing for this podcast, because I listen to a lot of podcasts. Obviously, I, I have uh, certain topics I think and things I like. But talk about the, the case study you reference, MeUndies in phonocracy, and, th- and then I'll tell you why it kind of came to my attention. Because I thought we've <laughs> never we've never on this show so far discussed underwear, but I yeah. think this is a, is a really great case study that you uh, elevated in, in the book. <laughs> and we, I don't normally talk about my underwear either, but I have <laughs> I have I have been recently. So, so, you know, for most of my life. I would buy new underwear when the old ones got holes or started to sag. <laughs> and um, it wasn't really very much fun. And I would go to like, I went usually went to a discount place, go to a discount place and buy some boring old underwear. And, and then 
somehow I just learned of this company, MeUndies. I believe it was because uh, somebody on social media shared a photo. I actually, frankly, can't remember how, but I looked on their website and said, oh, this is really cool. It seems interesting. There's people who seem really excited about their underwear. So I decided to buy one pair and I got it and it was comfortable and I liked the design. And then I discovered that you can buy, you can subscribe to a subscription underwear program. And I thought, well, that's really weird, but let me give that a shot because if you should, it's $16 a pair to buy one off. And if you buy, um, well, I forget the numbers, but call it 20, 20 bucks to buy one off and $16 if you subscribe per month, one pair per month. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. So then I realized that they were creating what I now call a fanocracy. They were creating a fandom, a group of like-minded people, a tribe of people who all coalesce around an idea. Because when you become a subscriber, you actually get access to prints that you can't buy as a one-off. Well, that's interesting. I, I, my, my underwear is now something that's, uh, that other people can't get. Um, or they have his and hers underwear. So that means that any different permutations of partners or friends or, or lovers can wear the same print. And what I think was most interesting, however, is that people free, and I haven't done this yet, but maybe I will one day, people free, freely share photographs of themselves in their MeUndies. And <laughs> they, share, they share on their social media, especially on Instagram. And then MeUndies, the company, will share that sometimes with their followers. And they will sometimes ask those people if we can use you in our advertisements, in our television, uh, in our YouTube videos and so on, in our Instagram posts and on our website, so that the people who model MeUndies and the people who are showing what these un underwear look like are real people. And they're real people who love the product and they're real people who are doing it not because they're being coerced, but because they want to. And I, for, I forget the numbers, but it's, I think it's over a half million Instagram followers of an underwear company. Yeah. Which is just, you know, that's just out of control that yeah. that many people are fans of an underwear company. So I think as an example that we highlighted in our book, and I say we, because um, I wrote Fanocracy with my daughter, Reiko, as an example that we highlight in our book, I think it's a wonderful one because they truly have created a fandom. They've created a product in a category that not very many people thought much of, underwear, and turned that into something that people truly become a fan of. And, and what I love about their marketing now, and it's, it was why I talked about the podcasts I listened to, one of our former guests on, on the podcast, Rain Wilson, who is, uh, every, uh, you know, most people know from when he was in the office, he does a, a free podcast, like a free audio book now called Dark Air. And it, it's free content. And he's already had a million downloads after, I think, about six or seven episodes. So it gets a great uh, following. But obviously, he has sponsors to promote the show and obviously to finance the show. And rather than just drop in advertisements kind of all over the place and disjoint the flow of the podcast, they actually become an integral part of the show and the story. And mm. me and me undies features <laughs> every week as part of that story. 
Uh, and it's it's a really and that's what brought my attention to it. But it's become a part of the podcast, and and I thought that was a really novel way of of marketing. Yeah, no, good, and I appreciate you you asking about that example. One of the things that I try really hard to do, I have with all of my twelve books, is use examples that other people are not using. You know, you you and I both know that so many lazy people are constantly citing the same examples. You know, Apple Apple is, you know, everybody talks about Apple or Zap Zappos, right? Or, you know, and it's just it's it's laziness. It's um people who really aren't deeply thinking about marketing and and companies that are doing good marketing. And so I'm always looking for new examples. And when I first started talking about MeUndies, I had never I had never seen anybody else talking about MeUndies. So it it warms warms my heart that Rain Wilson is <laughs> is now also talking about MeUndies. Whether it's paid or not, it doesn't matter to me. It's just interesting that it's become so popular. I could have predicted that. When I first started talking about them, they had not yet sold a million pair. And now they have this wonderful slogan. And I don't know what the number is now, but let's call it for argument's sake, 10 million happy butts and going strong. Um, um, so they really, they really crushed it. And yeah. um, it's a great example. But I think all the examples you have in phonocracy are, like you said, things that you, you might not necessarily have heard of before, but I think they're all personal examples for you as well, David. Things that, you know, when you talk about uh, the campground of America is one example I remember. Uh, the insurance company. I mean, mm-hmm. insurance is such a homogenous sort of necessity that you, it's difficult to get excited about. But the brand that you reference there, it's really amazing the way they've got you hooked as a fan on their product or, or on their service yeah that's um the example we use there um is an auto insurance company called haggerty and you know when i prior to march of last year i i did a lot of in-person speeches and i would always get up on the stage and i'd say who loves their auto insurance company and there'd be almost no hands in the air people would laugh or giggle or squirm in their seats i mean who's a fan of your auto insurance company right you you pay them money and you hope you never have to use their product because it meant you crashed their car. <laughs> and so I started to learn more and more about Haggerty, and they do classic car auto insurance. And um, so much so, actually, I'm actually a customer, have been for 15 years, and I actually decided to interview the CEO of Haggerty, McKeel Haggerty, and he said, David, we cannot market the same way that other insurance companies do. We're not going to become the low-cost provider. We're not. We're not the cheapest. I'm not going to spend more money on advertising than everybody else. We just can't win that battle. But what I can do is build fans. And so what Haggerty did was they set out to build fans of auto insur- of their auto insurance company. And because they do classic car auto insurance they were able to go to the places that classic car owners love to congregate, classic um, car shows, auctions, and so on. And they're there. They've got a booth set up. They're um, chatting with people. They're a part of the, um, of the show. 
They have a wonderful website. They have a YouTube channel with over a million subscribers. They have a database of the price of the different classic cars per year and so on, so that if you own um, a particular model in a particular year, you can see what it's worth. And all of that is free. All of that is is what Haggerty is doing to create this fandom uh, culture around both Haggerty and classic cars. And as a result of doing that, they've become very quickly the most um, uh, the largest classic car auto insurance company in the world. And um, they're going to grow by 200,000 new customers this year. And they're just doing just a, a, a superb job at building fans of their business and not doing business like everybody else in that industry, which is either be a low cost provider or spend more money on ads. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned before that you wrote Phenocracy with your daughter, Raiko. And um, I have three daughters. The eldest one is 11. They're all massive Harry Potter, massive Harry Potter fans. And I know that can be said uh, of Rico as well. But how was the experience writing with your daughter? I know she injected a sort of scientific neuroscience element into the book. But how was that whole experience? It sounds great. Yeah, I mean, as a father of daughters, you would you would appreciate this, although yours are younger than mine. So the way this started was six, seven years ago. I started thinking about this idea for this book, which eventually became Fanocracy. At that point, it didn't have a title or anything. It was just, I wanted to do a book about fandom. And, you know, so I I started asking Reiko, you know, she's um, my daughter, so she's a different generation. As you mentioned, she has a scientific bent. um, She's now an emergency department doctor at Boston Medical Center. And when we were writing the book, she was in medical school. And she's also a fan of different things than I am. Um, she, uh, I'm a huge fan, as I mentioned, of, of live music. I'm a f- huge fan of surfing. I'm a fan of, of the Apollo Lunar Program and so on. Um, Reiko, I, like your daughter's huge Harry Potter fan. She's read every book, of course, seen every movie multiple times, of course, gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park. By the way, if you haven't taken your daughters there, that is a must-see at some point. Okay. And then um, she also went to the UK to go on the studio tour. Oh, yeah. Um, but she, w- she also wrote an 85,000-word alternative ending to the, to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. And she put that – it's a full-length novel – put that on a fan fiction site for anybody to be able to download for free. So she's dug in deep into the Harry Potter world. So we made a perfect team. Oh, so so we were talking about these ideas of fandom. And I was telling her I'm, I'm a huge fan of live music, which she, of course, knew. And she's like, yeah, Daddy, I'm you know really into this um, Harry Potter world. And she's also very much into K-pop as well and has written about K-pop and so on. So we decided to collaborate on this book. And it worked out so great because we're utterly different in many, many ways, but we saw the world the same around this idea of fandom. So we spent, um, you know, roughly two years researching and writing and editing and and then marketing the book. And it worked out great because what we were able to do is transcend the father-daughter relationship pretty much for the first time, because it could not be a hierarchical relationship when you're writing a book like this. You know, she had to be totally confident in telling me that 
something I wrote was not working or that an idea I had for the ch a chapter or a story was a bad idea. She had to be able to tell me that. And I had to be able to recognize that her ideas were equal to mine. And if she wanted to do something and felt strongly about it, but I disagreed that I would let it fly anyway. And, and that worked out great for the book and it worked out great for our relationship. So, you know, having a, a millennial mixed race, Harry Potter loving woman <laughs> be a co be be a be a co-author for for a middle-aged white guy who loves the Grateful Dead it was a really good thing. <laughs> now, let's switch gears and go into the pandemic. How do you think phonocracy play has played during the pandemic? Has it become a more important factor and and how do you think it will play as we as we said at the beginning as we start to put it all behind us i've had hundreds and hundreds of people reach out to me through social media um through email my email is public email address is published on my website davidmeermanscott.com people who know me people who don't know me and say how the ideas of fanocracy have been so helpful during the pandemic and the main reason for that is if i were to um to really just break it down into its simplest form, the idea of fandom is being a part of a tribe of like-minded people. It, and being a part of a tribe of like-minded people is something that's rooted in every one of our DNA because it's actually a survival technique. And um, Reiko's undergraduate degree was in neuroscience, and we ended up speaking with a bunch of neuroscientists about this idea of what drives fandom in our brains and it is rooted in neuroscience and there's a number of reasons for that but the primary reason is that we feel safe and comfortable when we're around people who are like us so if you're at a sporting arena rooting for the team that you love and you're around other people also rooting for that same team you feel an affinity to everybody in that in that sporting arena. Same thing is true if you're at a concert with the band you love, and even if you don't know those people. And that goes back to tens of thousands of years ago when we would be roaming the deserts or the plains or the woods, you know, hunting for our food. And if we ran across another tribe of people, it was a dangerous situation. If we ran across our own tribe, we were fine. And Another concept within fanocracy is the concept of kindness and generosity. And so those things kind of came together around the pandemic where people very often retreated to their tribes to survive the pandemic. And that, that goes back tens of thousands of years. If, you, if disease or danger or is spreading to your community when you know you're living in caves somewhere or in a tent somewhere you would retreat to your tribe to maintain your safety the same thing happened during the pandemic kindness and generosity helping out your fellow man and woman also something that's rooted in humanity main as a big chapter in fanocracy became something that people really identified with during the pandemic so I could not have ever predicted that within two months of the day the book came out that we would be in a total lockdown. And I had had 
dozens of speaking gigs booked to talk about the ideas in fanocracy, and I had to either cancel or postpone all of them or turn them into virtual. No one could have ever predicted that, but um, I do feel pleased that the ideas in the book became helpful to a lot of people at a tough time. No, and I mean, they certainly helped us with what we were doing, and, and we changed our, we pivoted our marketing thoughts around that, you know, the idea of sharing you know, common stories, sharing common values and interests with our customers and, and beyond. Now, something you mentioned there as well, David, was you had to cancel a whole bunch of speaking gigs, right? And one of the, one of the most interesting things I, I saw in, in, uh, or I read in the book was the idea of proximity. So mm-hmm. The closer you get to people into their personal space, you know, the, the more stronger the, the, the fandom you create. So, when you had to cancel your physical events and do everything, you know, virtually or, or some things virtually. And what we saw was there was just this deluge of virtual digital events. It was like a bombardment. So how has that played out? How have you sort of got over the, how does proximity play in the virtual world and in, 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 you know, in the way you describe it in your book? Well, there's a couple of things at play here. So first of all, I mentioned at the top of our show how I've always noticed that people try to take what they already know and apply it to a changed world. So when the web, the ability to do marketing on the web came along, people simply wanted to spend money on banner ads because what they knew about marketing was spending money on advertising, as opposed to understanding that things have completely changed and now you can publish content for free and that can serve as your marketing. So it took me and and others, but, you know, primarily in the beginning me to talk about how this, this is a changed world. It's about publishing. The same thing happened with this idea of, of virtual events. And I noticed immediately that people were trying to take their in-person event and cram it into a zoom room and it just didn't work because it's a completely different thing. And I realized that to do a successful presentation, you have to reimagine what's possible rather than try to recreate what you already are familiar with. Um, you know, a, a, an in-person event is in a big stage and, you know, you've got lots of room. You can see the audience. It's just a very different thing than playing to a camera or a set of cameras. So, um so, so that, that's the first observation. And you're, you're right that I talked a lot in Fanocracy. We talked a lot in Fanocracy about this idea of proximity. And then um, I was able to translate that to virtual proximity. So the idea of proximity, this was first talked about by a neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall, is that the closer you get to another human being, the more powerful the shared emotions, either positive or negative. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about this idea of being a part of a tribe. So if you're with your tribe of people, you're with your friends, and you get together, um, being close to them is a super powerful thing. If you get into a crowded elevator, you don't know those people. That can be a negative thing or a crowded train car or something. You, you know, you can't help it. That's a natural human reaction. So he identified several different levels of proximity relating to how far away you are to another human being further than about 10 feet he called public space 
And our brains do not track people in our public space. We may know they're there, but we don't actually track them. Inside of 10 feet becomes social space. And we begin to track those people. We know where they are because it's important for us as humans to understand where potential danger might lie. And that's why you get tired the more people get into within 10 feet of you. So when it's really crowded, your brain is working overtime. And then within four feet, is called personal space. That's where the most powerful interactions happen. So if you're with people you enjoy, like at a cocktail party, four feet is cocktail party distance. That's super positive stuff. And so the virtual proximity comes in, um, something called mirror neurons is another part of neuroscience, part of our brains that fire when we see somebody do something or even hear somebody doing something as if we're doing it ourselves. And I'm going to demonstrate that for you now. Now, you and I can see each other on a, on video, and I know many people are only listening in, but this demonstration also works just if you're listening in. Um, so pay attention. Um, what I have in my hand is a lemon and a slice of lemon. And Matt, you can see this, um, or imagine I've got a lemon in one hand, a slice of lemon in the other hand. If I take a bite of the slice of lemon, my brain fires like crazy because it's a super powerful thing to bite into a slice of lemon. But if I bite into a lemon and simply describe it, if you're listening, your brain fires too. And I'm going to do that now. Let me take a bite of this lemon. Wow. So it's super powerful. It makes my eyes close and my eyes are watering a little bit in my mouth puckers up. I can feel it on my lips and my tongue. It's biting into a lemon is super powerful. Matt, are you feeling the lemon? Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, And even those of you who could not see the lemon or, or could still, through just hearing me, imagine, I bet your mouth is is watering a little bit and you're actually tasting a little bit of that lemon. That's the power of mirror neurons. Now, here's where it becomes really interesting for virtual events. If you do a virtual event and you're filming within somebody's social space or personal space, in other words, the camera is cropped as if you're about four feet away or cocktail party distance or the distance that you would be if you were at a, um, a small table and there were two people having dinner together. That becomes, through mirror neurons, our brains process as if we're actually in the same room, even though intellectually we know we're not. Now, Matt, you and I right now are two countries away from one another. We're not even in the same country. Yeah, We're looking at one another on cameras where we're cropped about four feet away as if we were at a table talking to one another. Yes. And through mirror neurons, our brains are actually processing that we're in the same room, even though we know we're not. This is exactly why you feel you know a movie star personally or a television star personally, even though you intellectually know that you've never met that star. So we can use this technique in virtual events to be able to have what many argue is an even more intimate experience than a than an in-person event yeah. and i be, became so fascinated with this ideas i did put out another book at the middle of last year called standout virtual events how to create an experience your audience will love it was a a quickie book i wrote it in two months about how to do great virtual events 
based on this idea of neuroscience, based on my experience having presented at hundreds of virtual events. And, you know, like we talked about before, a bunch of different examples of organizations and people who've done a good job with virtual events. But, but the bottom line with it, you have to reimagine what's possible rather than recreate what you already know. That's amazing. That's really amazing. I feel like I've, I need to go and get some lemons Honestly, it's yeah. really, it's really, really incredible. As we come out of the pandemic now, are you looking forward to going back on the road? I know you did a lot of speaking engagements, events. Is the hunger there after all this time to really get back out there and hit the stage? Um, it's, in- it's interesting because prior to... Um, starting my own business and writing and speaking, I had been traveling all my career a lot internationally. And, um, you know, I, I, I ran Asia marketing for a company called Knight Ritter for six years. I ran a global marketing for another company called News Edge that was acquired by Thomson Reuters for, for five years. And then when I started my own thing, I was doing 30 or 40 speaking gigs around the world every single year. So I was getting on planes almost every week. I haven't been on an airplane since March of 2020. And um, so I'm torn. While on one hand, I do miss travel, meeting interesting people, getting on a, a physical stage and doing my thing. I also have really appreciated the last year and a half where I don't have to travel and I can um, really dig into some things that I want to do. So I'm looking now to figure out what the right compromise is of maybe doing 15 or 20 in-person speaking gigs a year, maybe one or two a month rather than three or four or five a month and doing a lot more local where I happen to be at the time. I've got several houses and uh, and a camper van. So I like to be in different places and without getting on airplanes. Um, and so that's going to be my challenge going forward. And I'm only now dealing with it because only in the last roughly week has the in-person speaking gigs and in- invitations really started to come through. I've booked three or four just in the last couple of weeks. So I now need to be too careful of not doing too many. I'm in the fortunate situation this far along in my career that I don't need to make decisions based on the financial implications. So I I have the luxury of being able to say no if I don't want to get on an airplane. The last thing I want to talk about, and we talked about it right almost at the beginning, David, was social media. And you Mm -hmm. talked about Facebook and its destructive algorithm. And you know, it, I think this is going to be one of the subjects that we've really focused in on on this new season, because we we've always looked at social media as being this positive. A lot of positive social media movements have grown out of social uh, social media, but I think we hit a moment of reckoning at the beginning of the year with social media when some some pretty crazy things happened, and it's clear that there's some negative aspects and externalities that come out of these platforms. So what what are your thoughts on this? Does, you know, as far as regulation, as far as reform, you know, we know that the the Communication Decency Act Section two thirty is can't really control or wasn't really built for this kind of these kind of platforms. 
What's your thinking on the future of social media and how to temper some of the damage that potentially can come out of it? I think by far the biggest problem is the algorithms. I think by far, far and away above every other aspect that people have cited as problems is the way that this uh, that the social networking companies and they all do this they all have algorithms that do the same thing facebook i think is the most destructive they all reward the kinds of social posts that people will engage with and people will generally engage with things that are surprising that are funny that are polarizing that victimize other people things that um have a distinct enemy, you know, we hate the other side kind of things. Those tend to get amplified more because people tend to click on them more. And so in an artificial kind of way, if you if you happen to follow somebody because you went to college with them or something, or they're your neighbor, and then all of a sudden they get into a destructive conspiracy theory or supporting a political candidate who's always doing negative things, then when those people that you follow that are part of your friend circle begin to amplify the voices of those people that they support, whether that's a um, a conspiracy theory they got sucked into or a political candidate, that's all of a sudden going to be in your feed. And if enough of those people's a reaction are in your feed and you're a little naive about how s- social media works you then start to say well everybody knows that's true because everyone's talking about it on Facebook well no the reason every you believe everyone's talking about it on Facebook is because if you click a couple things Facebook shows shows you way 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 more of that yeah and we've never had a situation like that as the way of disseminating information before in human history it's always been about people um, figuring out something to talk about. And then, you know, news is to sell newspapers, of course, but it's not about um, amplifying um, things that are untrue or things that are, that are destructive. And so I think that the answer is much less trying to regulate what is truth and what isn't truth. I think that's really hard. And I think it's much more the idea of figuring out how those social media algorithms can be tuned to not share the most destructive elements of people, because I think that's where the problem comes. And I think it's, it it is, this is, I think it's all set up for the next year to, you know, to be looked at. And I tried to look at what the antonym of a fan was and it was a non <laughs> and it was a non-fan and i thought well that doesn't that doesn't really work that doesn't sound great my closing question will be this david and i think this is something that, that that unites everybody we talked about the polarization and the division that can be caused by social media but in in your book and i think it was rico who, who put this in one of her chapters she talked about how the boston marathon bombing brought the people of boston together they rallied around the sp- the sports teams. She herself became a fan of, um, I think it was the Red Sox, and and there was a, a greater sense of unity and fandom around, you know, the Boston sports scene because of this negative disaster that was caused by the bombing. 
as we come out of the pandemic, there will be a rallying, a, a unity, a strength of 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 many different you know elements of mankind that that come together and we become stronger because of that adversity. I wish I could say yes, but I have to say no. And for the reason that we talked about in um, in the last couple of minutes around social media algorithms, unfortunately, because of exactly what I talked about, social media algorithms favoring things that are polarizing and conspiracy theories and alternative viewpoints that are dangerous, I'm afraid that there are hundreds of millions of people in the world, tens of millions of people in my country, the United States, who don't even believe there was a pandemic, who think that the vaccines that many of us have chosen to get are evil for whatever reason, who believe because of what they've read on social media that there are certain elements in the government trying to c control them and force them to wear a mask and so on. And I think if we can't agree on the fact that we humans collectively just faced a pandemic and came through it, if there's somewhat close to half the people who can't even agree that that's true, then we are, excuse my language, and the difference with the Boston Marathon bombing is that the bomb went off and it was awful and everyone was affected in one way or another in the city of Boston and beyond. And that's something we could rally behind. I'm just a little bit pessimistic when you have, for example, an entire mainstream religion with tens of millions of people in the United States of whom 55% do not believe that getting a vaccine is the right thing to do, that, that we don't have a collective mentality around the pandemic we've just gone through. No, it's, it's a really good point. And I think with the, with the Boston Marathon bombing, nobody was disbelieving that it happened, right? It was clear yes. it happened. And I think that if social media injects and weaponizes this disinformation, you know, it, it, it just naturally, well, not naturally, it just creates this inherent division in society on any topic, right, regardless yes. of what it is. Yeah, yes, I think that's exactly right. And I don't think the bigger problem is people creating original content that's patently untrue. I think the bigger problem is the social media amp companies amplifying that so that people believe it to be true because of the way they, they gather that information. Yeah, that's, that's perfectly, perfectly well put. So what's next for you, David? What have, what have you got lined up next from a, either a, a work publishing perspective or even from a vacation? Have you got that vacation planned yet to go surfing? Or? Um, you know, I, I, my wife and I both try to, we both do similar work, um, try to live our life so that we can work and play simultaneously. And we have a, a house um, in a vacation spot that we'll spend two couple months here and you know here and there two weeks here two weeks there over the over the summer and i also own a a wonderful brand new camper van it's uh, built on the mercedes-benz sprinter platform 
and it's got a, a bed that retracts in the ceiling and a toilet and shower and a kitchen and solar power on the roof. I can, it's four wheel drive. I can be off grid for as long as a week. So um, we're just all about doing our work in interesting places without having to get on an airplane. And we'll see, um, certainly this summer, we'll, do, we'll be doing a lot of that. So I live in the Bo- I live in the Boston area. So we've spent time in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont and you know just beautiful, wonderful places that are only a couple hours drive. Well, let me. I'm going camping next week, and nice. I'm, go- I'm going up to Manitoulin Island, which is the biggest freshwater island in the middle of Lake Huron. It's about a six-hour drive to Tobermory, and then you get a two-hour ferry across to the How island. How big is the island? I'm, I'm not sure dimensions, but it is the biggest freshwater island in the world. And wow. you can see it quite clearly on the map right in the middle of Lake Huron, sort of between the top of Michigan. So I recommend that, David, if, you've, nice. if you, as soon as you're able to cross the border into Canada, if you can head up to Manitoulin Island up there, it's wonderful camping, wonderful campgrounds, amazing scenery and wildlife. Have, uh, have have a have a great time. I just really I can't I've camped all my life. When I was a kid we we camped a lot, but I got uh you know, got a little bit too too um set in my ways about the things I like, like a comfortable bed to do the tent camping much longer and, and so getting the camper van is a great compromise. Excellent. Well listen, and where can our listeners find out more about your work, David? So my website, davidmearmanscott.com, or if you just Google David Meerman Scott, I'm the only one on the planet, so you will you will find me. Reiko and I have created a great website at fanocracy.com to learn more about the idea of fandom and the book Fanocracy. And on most of the social networks, I am DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. Wonderful. Well, listen, I've absolutely... Enjoyed our conversation immensely, David. Thank you for taking the time uh, to speak to us on The Great Indoors. As did I, Matt. Great conversation. I appreciate it. What a brilliant conversation with David. I'm a huge fan of his work. Uh, and, and you know, if you haven't already, please check out his latest book, Phonocracy. It's a fantastic read. It really is. So David said something, you know, that we touched on last season and we will continue to discuss this season, and that is the externalities associated with social media. David said that Facebook is more destructive and harmful to society than anything else that humans have ever created, maybe more than the atomic bomb. It's clear that the most divisive and polarizing subjects in our societies are amplified by these platforms. But what's the solution? We'll continue to look at this as the season unfolds. Now, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast, particularly if you're a first-timer to The Great Indoors. uh, Please feel free to leave us a review or a rating. We'd appreciate that. You can follow us on social media. Uh, Our details are in the show notes. And uh, visit our website, amdocs.com forward slash The Great Indoors, where we have a jamboree of interesting content that accompanies the series. Now, we'll see you again in two weeks' time. I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto, and have a great day wherever you are.